time. Some things have stayed the same. They've changed, but generally the change over time has shifted toward a much more positive approach toward pregnancy, you know, exercising during pregnancy, physical exertion during pregnancy, and the fact that it has more benefits. So there's been like a general kind of trend towards more is still safe. In fact, more is might be beneficial. Hi, I'm Sarah Kuhn. Welcome to the Juno Women Podcast, where I sit down for candid conversations with women who are experts in their field and share their specific knowledge so that we can become better equipped to handle all things motherhood. Juno Women is an extension of Juna, a fitness and nutrition app created to help guide you through your trying to conceive, pregnancy, and motherhood journey. Everything we do at Juna is designed to empower and support you through one of the most incredible and challenging times of your life. Today, I'm talking to Brittany Clare, author of Carrying On, the book that helps expecting parents make sense of the overwhelming amount of information available to them. We talk about how she came up with the idea to write the book, how pregnancy recommendations have evolved over time, and how you can use this book to help guide you through pregnancy. This is seriously one of the more thoughtful books I've read on pregnancy, so I really encourage you to purchase it. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Brittany, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. So thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about you, your family, and then like why like why you wrote this book, if you want. Yeah, great. So my name is Brittany Claire. I'm a mom of two. I have a six-year-old and a four-year-old, a boy and a girl. And I live with my family up in Maine, where it is currently just starting to think about turning to spring. And my background is in academics. So I have a PhD in history and my area of focus was history of medicine. And I did the academic track for a while. I taught college and ultimately stopped teaching. I joke that I retired early to focus on writing. I write for a parenting website now um, covering health and medical topics. When I was pregnant the first time, I was the type of mom that wanted to know all the things. I read all the pregnancy books. If it had to do with pregnancy, I was reading it. And so many of them, there's a lot of really helpful books out there, but there's also a lot of books that are condescending or they trivialize issues. And I remember reading some somewhere, I think it was in Time Magazine, someone said, why can't someone write a pregnancy book for grownups? And when I was pregnant the second time, I felt like I'd already read all of the standard fare. And I really wanted to just like meditate on some of the questions that I had. And I knew that they were questions that weren't necessarily going to have neat, pretty wrapped up in a bow answers. And so I started reading and writing at the time I was writing a blog just for fun on parenting issues from a medical historical perspective. And so it started out as a project where I was just writing blog posts on these questions that I had about the history of how certain pieces of pregnancy advice have been approached and ultimately ended up growing that project into a book. So it was kind of, it was really just organic. I had these questions that I felt stayed with me from my first pregnancy. And then I wanted to know like, why do, you know, why do we do this? Where did this come from? Why, what did doctors used to tell women about this? What did my grandma learn? What yeah. did my mom learn? So that was how the book came to fruition. And yeah, it's great. I'm glad you did it because it's, it is a totally different approach to pregnancy literature than I've seen out there. And so I, I commend you for it. And oh, thanks. <laughs> um, and it's interesting because I think like when I, I, 
I, I've talked about in the podcast, but like my mom has Alzheimer's and like those, like, I can't ask her the questions that I would have wanted to have asked her. And so it's interesting as you bring up, like, what were the recommendations that my mom had? And like, when I, back when I used to talk about my, my, about pregnancy with my mom, like it was, I was a young kid. And so I had no context for yeah. what she was saying. And I like always put those conversations off to like when it would, when I thought it would matter. And when it, when I, when it finally did matter, it was way too late. And so it it is interesting to, to think about, oh, like what was my mom's experience? And like, I like we're, you and I are going to discuss nutrition, the history of nutrition, as well as the history of exercise. And as I was reading those chapters, like I was thinking, I wonder if my mom exercised in pregnancy or like, yeah. it's just, it's, it is a fascinating discussion and I think we'll get into it. And so I don't want to lead too much, but I think one of the most fascinating things for me, especially in these two topics was how steeped in misogyny a lot of it yes. is. Yes. And I find that, I don't know why it's so shocking to me, but it's, Cause it shouldn't be right. <laughs> you know, like even as you're like, as I'm reading, like some of your like very thoughtful words and perspective, I was just like, oh my God. Wow. Yeah. That is just really patronizing. So let's get it. We'll get into it. Yeah. <laughs> um, sounds good. Cool. So let's start on in nutrition. I, I just, I'm interested in just sharing a little bit of the history of dietary recommendations for pregnancy and like where they came from, what were they, how did they change over time? Yeah. So I think this is, you know, what to eat dietary advice. I think this is one of the most interesting pieces of the history of prenatal advice because in a lot of ways, I think diet is really at the center of the table when we think about questions women have today about how to be pregnant. I think eating and what to eat and what not to eat is, this is like one of the first things that so many people think of when they find out they're pregnant. They're like, okay, what can I eat? Let me go get my vitamins. What am I going to have to throw out in my fridge? What do I now need to go get? And these decisions that we make and we're used to making on a daily basis, all of a sudden become bigger and often overwhelming. I remember standing in the grocery store and looking at things and just thinking, oh my gosh, okay, what am I going to, what am I going to get? What Mm -hmm. kind of whatever should I buy? And all of a sudden something that I wouldn't have thought twice about became this really big choice. Like what seafood am I going to buy? So I thought that this was a new problem in the 21st century. We have unprecedented access to unprecedented amounts of information. And I think that is really what's driving this kind of stress and fear around what we're eating. And I really thought this was something that was new, but it's definitely different, but it's not, this has never been a problem before. This is women have worried about what they're eating and how it's going to affect their pregnancy and their child. Really, it seems like a quite perennial problem. And as far as the medical history goes, basically, as long as we have medical records, like written medical documents, um, there are records of people telling pregnant women what to eat and what to avoid. And this dates really far back, dating back to Hippocrates. We can see these ideas that what a woman eats could somehow be related to miscarriage in the middle ages. There are these various texts describing like regimens that specify here's what, um, here's what pregnant women should eat. And the modern industrial U.S., like late 1800s, early 1900s, there's an abundance of information coming from doctors and various different kind of advice writers about 
what to eat and also about how to eat, which was really intriguing that in U.S. medical documents, there's so much information about how women should eat, which I find it at least entertaining. There's some kind of funny pieces of advice there. By the way, it's 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 interesting because like we're still doing that. And I think when I was reading this chapter, I was thinking about all this small, frequent meals, small, frequent meals, small. Frequent oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, yes, it's the same thing. Right. And I was I just I never ate small, frequent meals like I just and like we even will say it, too, if you're struggling with heartburn, blah, blah, blah. But I'm just like, I never ate small, frequent meals. It's just not how I want to eat. Like I yeah. ate one giant meal and then I was like full for the rest of the day. But anyway. Yeah, uh, that's my, my, that was what I did too, actually. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah, no. So I think looking at this kind of like long sweep, I think one of the things I really took away from my research was that there, you know, the way in which we worry now might look or feel different or more urgent, but that there have been these pieces of advice given out and women have worried about what they're going to eat and whether it's okay. And in previous generations, there were concerns about imprinting and this related not only to food and what you ate, but also what you saw. There were mm -hmm. ideas that if you saw certain things, it might somehow mark your child. Um, so I think it, it was, yeah, there was just, I was surprised just how pervasive some of these, some of these pieces of advice have been. And obviously they've changed like dramatically over, over time. They certainly haven't been static, but it's, it's evident that these are not, this is not like a completely new phenomenon, even though it feels. We're going to take a quick break so I can tell you about the Juna app, the app that makes this podcast possible. Juna is the premier app for every stage of motherhood with a 12-week trying to conceive plan and workouts, key nutrition information for every week of pregnancy and postpartum, plus six full video courses on birth prep, breastfeeding, newborn care, infant sleep, sleep from four to 12 months, and starting solids. The app is designed to be your number one companion from trying to conceive through your baby's first year of life. It also includes daily diaphragmatic breathing exercises, pelvic floor prep, daily tips and notes from me that are relevant to the exact things you are experiencing. These are so helpful for easing any fears and preventing the dreaded gestational Google mania, that sickness where you can't stop Googling every little thing that happens during pregnancy. Juna is available for both iOS and Android. Just search Juna in the app store or go to Juna.co. Again, that's Juna.co. The app is completely free to try for seven days, and if you decide it's not right for you, you can cancel any time within the first week. No questions asked. Download Juna today and get started. Now, back to the show. It's it's interesting because I feel like with the onslaught of information, we feel much more targeted in these assaults to do this. Right. I think it's just, it's where we're getting it from. In like, year, like years and years and years and years ago, it was like your community, right? Like it was like your actual like right. face to face community that had thoughts on it. Now it's just like our communities have expanded and those pieces of advice or whatever, they're just coming from from strangers. And and so I feel like the judgment feels different. I don't want to, and it's interesting because I think like for some people, like if my mother-in-law gave me advice on something versus a complete stranger, like I might take that differently. But for someone else, like hearing advice or judgment from a stranger might impact them totally differently. So Definitely. yeah. What was, what was the most shocking or not shocking? Let's 
what what is one of the recommendations over time that has like really like I for example eat eggs and then we find out eggs are really terrible for you. Is there anything like over time where it was like we recommended this and then we've really found out that's actually not a great idea. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that there's been any so nutrition science and the history of nutrition science is replete with examples exactly the one you just described where it's eat a low fat food. Oh, don't eat low fat food. You need to eat the fat. And so I think in some ways the dietary advice specific to pregnancy has followed those same mm -hmm. ups and downs as far as what's considered the most healthful or deleterious in general. But I think, I think I, I think you and I talked earlier before about this, like milk, the advice about drinking milk during pregnancy was quite surprising to me. And again, maybe it shouldn't have been, but I think <laughs> it fits in line with the ongoing attention. I guess I'll just back up and say that in, in the early 1900s, especially, there were all of these different ideas about what pregnant women should or shouldn't be eating. Some of them were like, frankly, read like you read these medical articles and it's almost like a fad diet. For example, there was like a fruit diet where it was basically the idea was only eat fruit and this is going to help keep your baby small and lead to an, early, an easier delivery base. This was the premise. So there are these fad diets, but, and there were lots, there were lots of points of disagreement, but there was virtually like unanimous support for the idea of pregnant women drinking milk in the early 1900s. And it was, I just wrote this down. It was basically all sources recommended that women drink at least a quart of milk a day. So this is four cups oh my God. of milk, which is, which is quite a lot. And it was based, this was basically a requirement. People talked about it in these articles. Like it was completely obvious. Like, of course, make sure you get your quart of milk. Obviously duh. <laughs> the tone was very much, obviously you need your milk, but let's talk about the things that you might not know. And you know, this was definitely surprising to me. I, uh, I don't drink milk and the thought of drinking four cups of milk, <laughs> even over a week, especially in my first trimester, it made me feel a little bit ill, but, and there was actually one, even a fad diet related to milk at the time as well. That was much like the fruit diet. It was exactly what you thought. It was basically that you should drink as much milk as possible and limit your diet to milk as much as possible. And it was seen as this basically way to treat any number of different pregnant pregnancy complications. So it wasn't particularly widespread or long-lived. It was an interesting <laughs> solution that many doctors championed at the time. But in general, this was an instance where I was saying before, basically like the pregnancy dietary advice is subject to these broader systems. So the reason that so many people were advocating pregnant women drink a quart of milk every day in the early 1900s was because this really just coalesced with this broader social, political, cultural campaign. I mean, that there are public health campaigns actively endeavoring to basically get Americans to drink milk during these mm -hmm. decades. So they started with children, they expanded to adults, they moved through meals even so that the entire, there were like radio songs and different posters and public health advertisements trying to get people to drink more milk. So you see this reflected in the pregnancy literature as well. So this was a very long-winded <laughs> answer, but to get back to what you were saying is I think that, you know, it is the pregnancy dietary advice is subject to these ebbs and flows that we see with nutrition, where it's, it's kind of part of that broader, that broader field. And I think that nutrition science is great. I love it. i 
love reading about nutrition, but there's a lot of like loopholes and things we don't understand yet. Yeah. It's, oh man, it is true. I think about, this is like a slight aside, but I think about the low calorie like sweeteners, like monk fruit and stevia. And I'm just like, are they just going to be the like sweet and low in five years? Like when nutrition science catches up, you have all these people consuming this stuff. And I, it just, I think like nutrition is a scary thing for me because yeah. it all depends on, um, the perspective is ever everybody reacts differently and the perspective of what you're reading and is vegan is keto. It's just right. Everyone has an opinion and various experts, like all it's just, there's no right right answer. And I think what, when you think about being pregnant too, and I'll talk a little bit about my, like, I, I remember when I first found out I was pregnant, the very first thing that I did was Google, what do I have to stay away from? What, what can't I eat? Not what can I eat? What right. will nourish my body? What will nourish my baby? What will make me feel good? Like, it's just right. like all of a sudden the like list of things to avoid is what I like needed to know to keep myself, like my baby safe. And I think right. um, that fear, don't know, like it's, is there I don't know where that fear comes from. I think I had like a hell of a ride to get pregnant. So maybe I was like just consumed with that as well. But it is interesting how that affected me. I'm curious if you have any story about how nutrition recommendations impacted you and your pregnancies. Yeah, I definitely, much like you just described, the first thing I did was figure out, okay, what? And actually when I first found out I was pregnant, I had, I found out and had been, I found out the morning that I defended my dissertation and or the morning after and had gone out for drinks. And I was like, oh my God, I had a couple of glasses of wine the night before, completely freaked out. I was like, I had tuna two days ago. So I definitely had this, went through this mental reel of what did I do wrong? And I had just found out I was pregnant and already I was thinking like, gosh, I feel like I did something mm-hmm. wrong because of this. And there is that fear and anxiousness that you don't want anything to happen. And I think that, again, like part of that does looking at the history of this and having read through so many of these documents, I mean, number one, like that we don't have testimony from average women, right? So we don't, if we ask someone this, um, there's, there's not a lot of diaries from 1920s the 1920s that we could ask someone this question and get the exact answer that we're looking for and know, get in her head and think, Mm -hmm. okay, what are you so nervous about? And there are some of those, but they're few and far between. It's not like we have a lot of great evidence on that, but we know that people have been like, I think part of it is we hear you, you have to avoid this. You have to avoid this. You have to avoid this. And when you're inundated with all those don'ts, yeah, like you internalize that yeah. and you worry. And so I think that the constant messaging and like the fact that what we hear is you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this is that that has real weight and it bears yeah. down. Yeah. And I remember, and especially because like you've been eating a certain way for so long, then all of a sudden you find out you're pregnant and not that pregnancy doesn't because it consumes every minute. But I remember, at, I think I was six or seven weeks pregnant and I ate a sandwich that had prosciutto in it. And in my mind, I was like, prosciutto is not a cold cut because it's cured and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I had this whole yeah. thing in my head. And then I like Googled it and I was like, oh, I'm not supposed to eat prosciutto. Oh my God. And then I spent, I'm in three solid weeks being consumed with oh looking for hysteria symptoms because the like the lag is so long. Yeah. Hysteria, yeah. And I was just like, like that, I mean, it was just not a great place to be in. And so yeah. it, it oh is it's interesting, like how those things just really get you. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think it's interesting because you do, I mean, there are pieces of advice that are like legitimate. We have learned things about what 
there are certain things that maybe it's best to avoid when you're pregnant. I think overindulging in alcohol is a very obvious, easy, and controversial example there. So on the one hand, you want to be safe, right? And you want to know what's safe. But on the other hand, you also want to know why. Right. And so that's an example where we have a great deal of evidence starting in the 1970s, dotted evidence. And, but for some of these things, there's not a lot of evidence and it helps to find a trusted source and try to relax as much as you can. <laughs> yep. 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 <laughs> All right. Let's, let's talk about, let's switch gears, talk about nutrition. Okay. Cause this has been yeah. a fascinating, I mean, the, this has been a real 180. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so let's, can you share some of the more notable points in history and like what the recommendations were for movement and exercise? Yeah. Yeah. So this is a new phenomenon in terms of the historical record. So there wasn't anything really formal on this really until the late 1900s. So like in in terms of like formal guideline committee opinions, we do have books from various experts. And sometimes these were doctors, sometimes these were public health professionals or actually women who had experience in one arena or another that talked more generally about the best way to live through pregnancy and be pregnant before the 1980s. And these would, these advice books would talk about physical activity as an important thing, but there wasn't really anything official until the 1980s because exercise itself, just for the sake of it, whatever your reasons might be, was not very common previously. And it especially was not very common among women. And in fact, it was kind of weird to to be exercising. It was not a a normal thing. But probably some of the most pivotal moments were, so in the late 1960s, there was this one article published in the journal Obstetrics and Gynecology. And it was really an article that was targeted toward like athletes, like professional athletes Mm -hmm. at a higher level, not your everyday kind of exerciser, because again, that was still pretty uncommon. But for most of the early 1900s, even going back before that in the Victorian period, like the general idea or the general prevailing notion was to take it easy, right? And like idle, time spent idle was like time better spent for Mm -hmm. pregnant women. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about how biased that (laughs) idea was, Um, (laughs) but it was generally like, don't overexert yourself don't do too much. You can still keep up with what you need to in your home, but don't go crazy. And so in the 1960s, this article basically asked like, why, why should you not overexert yourself? What's wrong with being physically active to the point of fatigue? And the guy who wrote the article basically said, there's actually, I can't find any evidence that becoming fatigued is harmful. And that really turned things on its head and opened doors to start asking new questions and actually start investigating and say, okay, for all this time, there's just been this like vague, nebulous, cultural, social advice. So included in medical textbooks and in doctor's offices advice that would have been given out was to to take it easy and don't work too hard. And so just asking why was really big. And like I said, open the doors for new conversations and just really shifts and set the stage for shift in terms of what was considered acceptable. And then in the 1980s was when ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists first issued its guidelines, which was huge because that was in issuing guidelines on physical activity during pregnancy. It was also equivalent to 
a, a stamp like of saying approval. you should do it. Yeah. Saying, saying this is a good thing. We approve it because prior to that, there had not been any guideline. And so those changed over the years. The initial, the very first committee opinion was the one that had this heartbeat regulation, which although it was repealed in the next one, I, I don't know about you, but it's I still around. I, I still stuck. hear about it. I yep. mean, <laughs> and so whenever I, all of the experts who even participated in these later decisions were like, there was never any scientific basis for that. There's no merit to it. And yet it's still continues to, to circle around in various different places. So they've changed over time. Some things have stayed the same. They've changed, but generally the change over time has shifted toward a much more positive approach toward pregnancy, you know, exercising during pregnancy, physical exertion during pregnancy, and the fact that it has more benefits. So there's been like a general kind of trend towards more is still safe. In fact, more is might be beneficial. Let's be honest, one of the hardest and most unexpected things about postpartum was feeding myself nutritious foods. Between trying to figure out my baby's sleep and feeding schedule, trying to keep the house in working order, trying to keep myself bathed and functioning, there was very little extra time to go grocery shopping or to do meal planning and go cook for myself and the family. Enter Home Chef. They have simple and delicious meals for every day of the week. You can choose between the oven-ready meals, which I highly recommend, especially in the early postpartum period, to ready in 15 minutes. The meals are healthy, easy to make, and make the cleanup process easy peasy lemon squeezy. Use the coupon code JUNA115 to get $35 off your first box, $30 off the second box, $25 off the third and fourth boxes. Trust me, this will make your life 1 million times easier when you don't have to think about feeding yourself and your family. Once again, go to homechef.com, pick your meals, and use the coupon code JUNA115 to get $115 off your first four boxes. Enjoy! Oh, that's fascinating. I think one I want to bring it up just because that's it's so funny and just duh. Of course, you'd say that. But I, when I was reading this chapter, the make sure that you don't do too much, don't too don't do too much, but still keep make sure you're keeping a clean house. Make yes. sure that you're staying on yeah. top of your household duties. Yes, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Which is just so hilarious that it's not. It's really important that you relax have your husband take over whatever it is that you, yeah. I wonder who was saying that. Is it male? Yeah. So for rest of the history of obstetrics, it was met, it was predominantly men. Now the field is, I don't know exactly the gender ratios, so I won't say them because I'll say, the, I'll probably say the wrong numbers, but it's mostly women now prior to sometime in the last few decades, it was mostly men and it was mostly men who were making these directives up. And again, they were, it was kind of like general advice stemming from different quarters in society, but there was not any true basis to it necessarily. Now, if coming from women, it might have been a little more sympathetic, but even in books that women wrote during these decades, they're like, no, you need to keep up with what you need to keep up with. So there were these expectations, but, and may maybe this is actually a good time to, to talk about the class and race things. I think this is one of the places where I know at the beginning of our conversation, you talked about how misogyny is just like really integrated into a lot of these different origin stories. And I think that thinking about what is the ideal amount of activity, according to the medical perspective, at least over time, is really where you see 
these problematic threads just like very prominently. And to give one example to illustrate what I mean. So again, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, this Victorian Moors, the idea was that women should really lay, should lay low during pregnancy. And again, the idea was to optimize your idle time, but that really only applied to like white, wealthy, upper-class women. So if you take it back a few decades earlier in the mid, mid 1800s, the same men who thought that their wives needed to maximize idle time also owned slaves who were expected to continue working often at grueling levels throughout their pregnancies. And there are a lot of racist ideas that tied into that and expectations about different bodies that were in- incredibly racist. And But this is a place where we see that the expectation was not the same for all groups of people. And there's, ex- you know, there th- these examples continue. And even after slavery ended, we see the same, that same kind of paradoxical thinking with still with minority women and black women and also with lower class women who often had to perform physical labor for their mm-hmm. livelihood for immigrant women so really depending on where you stood in society depending on your race your class and you you would have maybe received very different messages about what was the ideal kind of work or activity level for you to be for you to be doing so this, this, the history of exercise in pregnancy is really closely related to these social, cultural expectations about what women should be doing. And to go to speak to the housework example, like in the 1950s, if the ideal woman was keeping a good home, keeping a clean home, making dinner, doing these were. I'm speaking in really broad story. This is not like every woman was not Betty Draper, but right. but this was the general idea and acceptable forms of exercise listed in these medical texts were things like vacuuming. And this makes me think twice too, because there are also, you look at like popular women's like magazines and stuff. And there's a lot of that we see now. And I saw yeah. when I was pregnant, that's if you don't feel like exercising, like vacuuming's good good, a good work. Vacuuming burns calories. And that really makes you think twice about, about reading things like that and some of the messaging that it's conveying even today. So, yeah, I mean, we, it's so sad. You, you would think we've come far, but we haven't come that far. We're still subject to this, these same messages. And I think that there's a lot of duality in this where you, we want to convey to people. We want women to know that exercise is healthful and including during pregnancy, but we also have completely unrealistic expectations that we set for pregnant women and expect her to keep doing everything and keep her body in looking a certain way and not, not slow down with work or with the home or her social life or else. And that's a lot of pressure. So we want to, it's hard because you want to convey the right message, but you also want to be very careful about how it's delivered. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. I'm interested in how, in how the exercise recommendations impacted you and how you treated each pregnancy differently. Cause I know for me, every mm-hmm. pregnancy like with when you're pregnant for the first time i like equate it to wedding planning for the first time you're like holy shit i've got i'm now i'm like getting up to speed and i know nothing and this is all new and yeah here i go whereas like the second time you you've learned a lot and you so the things that you focus on it are really different and i i have my own experience but i'm interested in yours 
Yeah. I felt I had something taken away from me in terms of exercise when I was pregnant the first time, because I, the kind of my MO at that point in time in my life was I went to hot yoga every single day and I jogged. And this is one of the pieces from that original 1985 ACOG committee guideline to keep your core temperature below, I think it's 102 degrees. And there's a risk of a a hot yoga room or like a hot tub, anything like that, elevating your core temperature. And that's for a risk of neural tube defects. So I thought I had to stop going to hot yoga. And I tried a few other different yoga studios, but just didn't click with them in the same way. That felt like that was just taken away from me. And then I ran a little bit, but when I hit about four months, I just, I was like, no, I'm not doing this. I cannot do this anymore. My body does not want to do it. And I was like, I'm spending the whole time just trying not to pee. And so I felt like my two like kind of things were taken away from me. And so I I felt a sort of defiance about exercising, I would say during my first pregnancy. I ended up doing a hodgepodge of different kinds of activities at home, mostly like workout videos. And now there's so much more available online at the time. This was seven years ago. There wasn't, there was, it was like slim pickings compared to now, but I did what I could, but I was really annoyed that everyone kind of kept telling me like, should you be doing that? If I lifted like a five or a 10 pound weight, it was like, can you do that? And so I felt, I felt like self-righteous about it. I'm going to do what I want. And it, this was, I talked to my mom a lot about this. I had the, I was very fortunate to be able to do that. And I knew she, even in the 1980s, um, she would, she went through four pregnancies and ran through all of her pregnancies, exercised through all of them. And she was cool enough to have a doctor that, mm-hmm. that was like, oh yeah, that's great. Yeah, no, no problem. And then in my second pregnancy, I think I had a lot more like grace for myself probably because it was just like, I'm just, it's also you're keeping up with another kid is like <laughs> enough on its own. But I think I didn't stress as much about what I was doing because I'd already, I'd already had to make so many changes that it was like, well, I can make more changes. That's okay. It didn't seem like it was something as, as big of a worry or as big of a concern to me. Yeah. Know. Yeah. I, it's funny. I had a very similar first pregnancy experience. I ran, I did hot yoga. I stopped doing both of those things. I, yeah. I, I remember like at nine weeks, every time I ran, it felt like my uterus was going to fall out. And I, yeah. There was no weight <laughs> in my uterus yet. And I know people that run until like they're 37 weeks and I'm just like, I know. I thought I was going to be one of them. And then it just was not available for me. And I, yes. and I, I just struggled. I wasn't sure what I could do, what I couldn't do. It's honestly like my first pregnancy is like, is why I created. Yeah. Like, because I was just like, I don't, there's other women out there like me that live for exercise. It makes them feel better. And for them to spend nine months, just freaking confused because they don't know what they can do. And then exercise is like my like my sanity pill. And so, so I felt like I really just like wasn't as happy or as stable as I could have been in my first pregnancy. And then again, I learned a lot going into my second pregnancy, felt much better about doing the things that I wanted to do. I also was like, I know that running isn't going to be good for my body for pregnancy. So like, I I just found other things and I, I was in a much more consistent routine. And then with my third pregnancy, I had already created the Juna app and I follow, I like followed it yeah. religiously. And it was just like, it was so fun to be able to just like, to just do it. Like I would just wake up. I knew I was doing this workout. It was just, it was a totally different experience from the first two, just because I knew that what I was doing 
was the right thing to be doing. I knew that I right. could be doing. And I feel like that peace of mind was like what I needed to go hard. And I like, I, I was, I literally had done a 45 minute workout the day I gave birth and I yeah, it wasn't so able to exercise after 28 weeks after with my first pregnancy, because I had such bad pubic symphysis diastasis. I couldn't even walk, let alone exercise. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And, and all the stuff that I did in my, in my third pregnancy actually helped prevent that. And I like was like, oh, this is a totally different ball game. And so I think that it's funny. I, the heartbeat recommendation is one of those things. It's so pervasive. And I just, I wonder who's perpetuating it because it must be obese because yes, it's still, it still exists online, but it's just, it's like, a, like one of the more, more common questions that we get. Like, like really, oh, I, and it's always that 150. And, and I also remember when I went for my first run with, when my first pregnancy, I had like a device and I was like, dude, I'm at 170 and I'm going like, I'm hardly <laughs> moving. Like, how can I get my heart rate even lower than this? This is insane. And yeah. that was also part of the reason why I wanted to stop was because I was just like, I'm one of those people, like I would run at 180 and just be mm -hmm. like totally fine. And my resting heart rate is like 42. Like, it's just like that. <laughs> And so it's, but I just, I was like, there's no way I can run. I can't get my heart rate below 150. And that was the thing in my head. And it, it must've heard it from my OB because it wasn't like I searched a hundred. Like I remember being, I must've yeah. said, Hey, can I, can I exercise during pregnancy? And that just must've been communicated to me when I asked the question. Yeah. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny that you had the same experience with yoga and running too. Yeah. So it, yeah. cause I think the hot room, oh, like usually it confuses me. Did they take that away? That core body temperature thing away? Is that no longer an issue? No, that's okay. still a recommendation. That's yeah, what I because okay. there's a very, it's very slight, but there is a very slightly elevated risk of a neural tube defect developing. Um, happening early on. Yeah. Yes. Got that's it. when they, yeah, they happen early. So but, then you, can you go to hot yoga after the first trimester? Or no one. So the recommendation is throughout, although this is an area where like it would be fun to poke holes, neural tube defects develop early, very early in pregnancy. Often I think by nine weeks, I'm going to, I'm going to want to mess that up, but it's early on in pregnancy and the recommendation holds for all of pregnancy. But this is like one, the same thing is true of folic acid that it's like much right. more important in the first trimester, but we recommend folic acid throughout pregnancy because it's, is it really worth the risk of finding out, you know, yeah. anything? And it's easier to just tell someone to take it throughout yeah. pregnancy than only up until a certain time. But yeah. the, it doesn't, this is a piece where it doesn't quite align. I don't want to imply that folic acid isn't necessary because it's a hundred percent necessary. So that's not my intention to, to state otherwise, no, but no, no, I, yeah. we get it. There's yeah. nuance there. Yeah. Um, cool. That it's, well, this has been a really fun discussion. I think the history so is much. really interesting. Why don't you just share a little bit? Cause like we've only covered two of the, I don't know, 10, topics that you yeah. kind of talk about. So if you just want to quickly say, talk about the book, what it's called, and then yeah. what else you cover. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Thanks. So the book is called Carrying On. And so it's set up such that I basically researched one chapter, like for each pregnancy. So it's nine chapters and nine different topics. And so these were just each meant each, the things that I was thinking about most. And again, my kind of goal with each one was to figure out, okay, what, what is the prevailing advice? And like, how did it come to exist as such? What is the history of how this advice came mm -hmm. to be what it is today? 
And it's, you could skip around the book depending on how, what topics interest you, but it kind of moves in what I kind of hope would be a logical progression. Mm -hmm. Like it starts with prenatal vitamins. Like how did we come to recommend these? When did women start taking them and why? What's the evidence been? I talk about the history of morning sickness and how doctors and women have tried to manage morning sickness over time. I talk about the (laughs) history. Sorry. All day. day Yes. The misnomer. I talk about the history of weight gain guidelines, which Mm. I think have become increasingly volatile points of discussion in the last few years. I talk about the history of nutrition, obstetric ultrasound, which was really fun. This is another pretty new area, but just what the guidelines and suggestions have been about how many scans to get, how many scans we actually get, what it's, what those are doing for us. And then exercise sleeping. I just talk about sleeping during pregnancy and how hard it is to yep. get sleep during pregnancy, the history of birth plans and history of induction is the last chapter. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, it, you mean you can, but it's, it is not like a, this is not a recommendation book. This is yeah. Correct. Yeah. No, it's not. If you want a book that's going to tell you what kind of fish to eat, you can eat or what kinds of exercises are safer to avoid. It's definitely not that kind of book. It's, I had some one friend tell me they think it's a great second pregnancy book yes, because yes. during your first pregnancy, you really do, do have those questions and you do want to know. And often in your second pregnancy, you feel, okay, I've got my feet under me a little bit, but it's more of a, a think piece. And it's more of asking like, okay, how did we get to this point? I, I, described it somewhere as living in the weeds. It's, it's not a book that's going to offer nice, pretty answers. It's more, no, this is this gray area here. So yeah. If you want a book that's going to just be like a free exploration of topics that are probably on your mind, but not necessarily come to some all resounding conclusion about what you should do, then this is a good book. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. So great to chat about it. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, that's all for today. If you liked today's episode, please share it with a mama friend and leave us a review. If you're pregnant, postpartum, or trying to conceive, you can download the Juna app completely free for seven days. The app is available for iOS and Android and is designed to be your guide for all things health and fitness for this very special time of your life. If you have any suggestions for episodes you would like to hear or anyone you think would be a great guest on the show, please email me directly at sarah at juna.co. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week.